Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and thank you for joining me again for another stumble through this very niche area of film history. That is, films that are set, or at least partly set, in Soho, the area that we describe as the beating heart of cosmopolitan bohemian London. And an especially warm welcome to those new listeners who have arrived here via podcast radio during our recent run on that station. Do check out more specially selected podcasts across all genres over at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Coming up in the first half of this episode, I'm joined by friend of the show, Melanie Williams, Professor of Film and TV Studies at the University of East Anglia, to take a look at Lee Vance, a British screenwriter who spent most of his career writing for TV in the States, but who started in the UK film industry in the late 1950s. With his noirish sensibility and a penchant for crime stories, it was perhaps inevitable that Vance would set some of his films in Soho, and it's one of those Soho films, The Shakedown from 1960, that we're looking at in the second half of the show. I'll be chatting to the film critic of the new European newspaper, Richard Luck, about this grimy thriller with its cast of pimps, gangsters, working girls, blackmailers and their victims, undercover cops and their narcs. Oh, and it has really, really good theme music too. Stick around to the second half of the show for that. Although not particularly well remembered today, the screenwriter Lee Vance is a significant figure in the small world of Soho films. Born in 1922, he began working in film in the late 1950s after a career in entertainment journalism. And as a boundary-pushing writer, it was perhaps lucky for him that he began working in the industry around the same time that John Trevelyan started his tenure as the head of the British Board of Film Censors. Trevelyan is seen by some as a much more liberally-minded holder of that position than his predecessors. Lee Vance wrote three Soho films. The Flesh is Weak from 1957, about a gang of pimps preying on vulnerable women. The Frightened City from 1963, in which Sean Connery plays a cat burglar turned protection gang enforcer. And of course, today's featured film, 1960's The Shakedown, starring Terence Morgan. Other writing credits include more crime narratives, 
Witness in the Dark, about a blind woman who's the only witness to a murder, the historical true crime drama Dr. Crippen, and Piccadilly Third Stop, a heist drama also starring Terence Morgan. And much of Lee Vance's later career in American TV was around the crime genre too, so it's ironic that in 1960 he found himself up in front of a judge accused of a rather sordid crime. When you consider that writers don't in general become famous outside the industry bubble, Vance was unusual in that he became quite well known to the general public in the 50s and 60s, thanks partly to those aforementioned legal difficulties and also to his rather glamorous marriage. To find out more about Lee Vance, I got in touch with Melanie Williams. As well as being a professor of film and TV studies, Melanie is a specialist in 1960s British film. She's been on the show once before when she joined me on stage at the Regent Street Cinema to talk about Rattle of a Simple Man. That was back in those days when people met in person and went to the cinema and sometimes talked to each other in the same room, perhaps over a refreshing drink. Sadly, this time round, we had to speak on Zoom for obvious reasons, which is why the audio quality is not 100%. I began by asking Melanie how significant a figure Lee Vance was. He's quite an important figure within British film and British television around that kind of late 50s, early 60s period, particularly in connection with the crime film genre. And he makes a number of thrillers that are kind of set within London and more specifically within Soho. So you've got films like uh, The Flesh is Weak, which is a prostitution drama, things like The Shakedown and Piccadilly Third Stop, which are both crime thrillers, both from 1960. So he's a very prolific writer around this time. The Frightened City in 1961. But he's also a significant figure within the structure of the film and television industry. So he's instrumental in forming the British Television and Screenwriters Guild. And he's one of a small group of writers who decide to kind of amalgamate and make the Writers Guild much closer to the status of the US Screenwriters Guild and to make it more of a kind of force to be reckoned with. It wants to be um, an organisation that has collective bargaining power and to get better pay and conditions for writers. Um, and it does, it does manage to do that. And, and Lee Vance is a, is a figure within that. So he's kind of honorary secretary from the outset. And they set up things like an award ceremony to sort of try and boost the position of the writer to draw attention to their contribution to film, to make sure they have proper screen credits that they're included on posters, things like that. There is a lot of frustration, particularly with the, the BBFC around this time, of not just inconsistencies across media, so things allowed on stage that aren't allowed in film and, and television kind of has its own way of operating, but also within film itself, American films are given a much easier ride because they're almost expected to be more morally questionable. So they're allowed to get away with more, whereas British films are being held to a higher standard, which then hampers their ability to work in more realistic modes. So there's quite a few voices around this time trying to open up censorship and to make a sort of freer expression, not just to preserve of a sort of 
arty minority. And it's the era of John Trevelyan, isn't it? Or the beginning of his period? Yeah, the, the beginning. So I think that's a sort of crucial shift, really, because there is a, a push towards liberalisation, obviously, that comes with Trevelyan. But Trevelyan is also very wedded to the idea of you have to earn your ex certificate and you can't be doing things that are gratuitous. So if he feels it's artistically kind of worthy, then it will be granted greater lassitude than other things. So if you're working in more sort of populist modes, like someone like Lee Vance was, you don't get such a tolerant ride through the process. You're kind of, you know, you're kind of caught between American populism and British and European artiness. And he was very influenced by, I think, his style is very influenced by US films. And then he went on, I mean, his career took him to America, didn't it? And Yeah, and yeah, he's, he's very sort of internationally successful. He does more stuff on television, so uh, he writes quite a few episodes of The Same, which is obviously made in Britain, but was very much intended for an international uh, audience and particularly an American audience. So making that transition to being uh, an American television writer kind of makes sense, really. He writes episodes of basically all the popular American series that you can think of in the decades from the 1970s onwards. Uh, so things like Matlock, uh, Mission Impossible, Fantasy Island. Oh, yes. He's involved in producing, <laughs> yes. He's involved in producing as well as writing for Canon, Beretta. So not an insignificant person in history of no. this film. But, I mean, we have found, I mean, possibly to do with lockdown, we have found it quite difficult to find much information about him online. We obviously can't go to libraries and stuff at the moment. And we, we jointly attempted to find out some stuff about, about his private life. And some of that is quite interesting. Um, yes. He was married to a Bond girl. Could you talk a little bit about that? And their, yeah. and their wedding, which was an unusual affair. Yes, he's, he gets married to... Um, Eunice Gason, who's the, in a way, the first Bond girl, the first woman appearing on screen, the one who I think elicits Sean Connery's Bond, James Bond, for the first time. They get married in 1953, but their marriage is televised on a US show called Bride and Groom, which is sponsored by a cake mix company. This is and... bizarre. <laughs> completely bizarre yes very very weird i mean it's an all expenses paid wedding he also argues to sort of suggest to to eunice that this would be great publicity for the review that she's currently appearing in um and she only has to take a little bit of time off and then they'll do this kind of big televised wedding um in the states and then she can kind of come back to london and, and get on with her work and it is it is featured in the UK press as well, but as a sort of sign of, oh my God, we're going to hell in a handcart, yeah. televised weddings, whatever next. Yeah. So it's seen as a sign of lowbrow American popular culture desecrating sort of important rituals. So all the things that kind of, uh, it's, it's interesting, it's sort of the same period as the coronation, because there's all that stuff about when the coronation is televised in the US, it's broken up with adverts, including one featuring a, a chimpanzee. So it's that, that sense that these, you know, important rituals are being 
cheapened by American television to sell cake mix or whatever it is. Or... So, so it's the the ceremony's kind of broken up with these ad breaks. You know, a message from our sponsors. So it's, it's, it's featured in the press here, but it's not a kind of source of positive attention. It's seen as, you know, something a bit cheap and tacky. On the other hand, they get a really lavish wedding for free. And this is in the middle of austerity. So you can you can definitely see the attraction of yeah, you know, absolutely. having someone lay on a really lavish wedding for you with lots of gifts. And all you have to do is just have your picture taken with them. It wasn't a very long lasting marriage, though, was it? No, from that slightly iffy start, it doesn't seem to have been a great success admittedly reading Eunice Gason's autobiography you're, you're obviously getting one person's side of the story but Lee Vance seems to have been quite a kind of controlling personality um, who didn't really want her to work infantilized her a lot she gets really annoyed at being called baby all the time but she does remain friends with him after they split but when they do split when she leaves him he also writes an article in the papers about you know I don't understand why my wife has left me yeah. um, so it's all it's all done in quite a sort of public way I think in, in a way that's quite new for Britain in the 50s. And there is a quite an odd little anecdote she talks about where she's about to fly off to is it Morocco to shoot a film with Victor Mature yeah, and he, he warns Victor Mature off, doesn't he, yeah. essentially? She's my baby. Keep your hands off, mate. And it's, what? Just yeah. go away, you idiot. Yeah. And then a few years later, the other major thing that comes out from his private life, in the most in the tabloids, is this bizarre incident that ended up with questions being asked about about him in Parliament. Could you explain this as best you can? Yeah, so in late 50s early 60s this is unfolding there is a court case in France and Lee Vance is accused of indecent exposure Mm. to a a French woman the person she accuses she says was in a car and they were wearing a towel and they lifted the towel (laughs) to expose themselves I'm not quite sure how this happens but (laughs) the idea that he is in the frame for this is followed up by his passport photo being supplied to the French police. And on the basis of that, he's identified as the person being accused of the crime. So then he is forced into this French court case and the whole thing kind of falls apart because it seems that it's clearly not him. The person who perpetrated the crime is different build, different complexion, different facial hair, you know, completely physically different. And it looks as though the woman accusing him doesn't want to go forward with the accusation and with the case. And it's kind of thrown out of court, but it raises lots of questions around transfer of information between countries, extraditing criminals. So it becomes quite a cool celebra. So Bernard Levin writes about it. He, he does, yeah. It's, it, it's on the front page of the papers. The case is discussed and then Vance kind of comes out as the person that is at the centre of all of this. It's very interesting. All this is happening around this same period as Anglo-French relations are quite strained as a result of Britain being denied access to the EC, partly because of de Gaulle's veto. So that idea, yes, that idea of the French saying no and treating us shabbily 
is kind of, I think, in people's minds. And this uh, Vance tries to get compensation from the, the Foreign Office and the various people kind of write in his favour. So, yeah, Bird and Levin, good example of that. So it's, it's a really, really weird case and you know we're kind of encountering it through some of the newspaper reports but you get the sense that you're not really getting the full story of how this really confusing thing has come about and you have a theory i do have a bit of a theory because it is contemporaneous with some of those crime films that that vance is is writing you know these this idea of being accused of a crime you haven't committed, of cases of mistaken identity. You can see how Vance's experience here might have sort of sharpened some of those. And looking a bit later on in his career, after he's done The the Saint with Roger Moore, he writes a a thriller called Crossplot in the late 60s. It's a bit like North by Northwest in that it's a an advertising man who's involved in a case of mistaken identity and but it's it's interesting to think you know whether some of the the things that happened to that character might have been inspired by this earlier experience that Lee Vance had of kind of foreign intrigue mistaken identity and false being caught accusation. In, a, in, a, in a big in a story that's bigger than you you know it's, it's yeah. two governments who have the problem and you end up just being caught up in the the crossfire yeah so I don't know, that might be a bit tenuous, but it's it's interesting looking at some of the stuff that goes on in in his life and, and thinking about that in relation to the content of some of his films. I think it all feeds in, yeah. So his papers are housed at University of California. Would you like to get your hands on those, or is he, is he just not that interesting a character? Is he interesting enough to spend your time? There's three feet of boxes, apparently. Oh, OK, yeah, that does sound interesting. Might have some love letters from Eunice. <laughs> yeah, you never know, or receipts for, you know, the, yeah. the wedding. <laughs> um, there's, there's, some, there's some interesting materials, perhaps, to be uncovered. And if you wanted to understand that relationship between British film and British television, but also that growing sort of transatlanticism of British television in the, the 60s, I think he'd be a really interesting figure to to explore that through. He's kind of part of that milieu, but he's also coming from this quite low-budget, B-movie, sub-film noir British milieu as well. So you get that more in his sort of Soho films, and then he, you know, he goes from Soho scuzziness to the the glamour of heart-to-heart eventually. Lee Vance died in Los Angeles in 1994, leaving behind a body of work that's still of interest today, particularly to Soho film nerds, and he certainly left his mark on the industry in other ways. According to the autobiography of his first wife, Eunice Gayson, Vance would always broach the subject of them getting back together whenever they encountered each other in the years after their split. She always politely declined. It appears he was better at writing than at being a husband. Thank you to Melanie for coming on the show again. Next time, I hope it will be in person. You can follow Melanie on Twitter on at BritFilmMelanie. And for links to information about her research and her various publications, go to episode 20 on the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hold up. 
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions it's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The shakedown opens in a cramped cell in Wormwood Scrubs, occupied by two men, Spettigue, played by Bill Owen, and his cellmate, a tense and angry Augie Cortona, played by Terence Morgan. Augie paces back and forth, exactly four paces from wall to wall. It's the night before his release, and he has revenge on his mind. To hell with him! You're not going to do anything foolish, are you? Look, Gollis had three years to get himself organized. You're going out of here broke. All your contacts are dried up. Augie, take my tip and lie low for a few months. I'm going to rip his guts out. Yes, but look. Hold up the screw. Spetty? Yes? How much longer you got? About six months. By the time you're out, I'll be as big as I ever was. Sure, sure. Well, now let's get some sleep with him. You'll see. You'll see. Augie was a big noise in Soho before his incarceration. A pimp with a thriving business and a book full of girls. But in his absence, Augie's nemesis, Goller, played by Harry H. Corbett, has moved in and taken over his business, his streets and his girls. The following morning, minutes before his release, Augie is visited by Chief Inspector Jarvis at the yard, who has some friendly advice for him. Things have changed in the last few years, Augie. There are new laws. You won't find it so easy to set up again. Sex is illegal now, eh? Your sort always was. Why don't you boys go the whole hog, make it a hanging matter? Sometimes I wish we could. I'd like to stay and hear more of your dreams, but I'm a free man now. I've got things to do. Would uh, Goller be one of those things? The name seems familiar. He's the big man now, Ogie. You're liable to end up with his initials hem-stitched on your face. Don't tell me you care. Only about saving myself trouble. Now stay out of his way or you'll find yourself in mine. And that's an order. And so the scene is set for Augie's return to Soho. And all this before Philip Green's excellent theme music slides in as Augie strolls away from the scrubs. Back in Soho, Augie quickly discovers he's no longer flavour of the month. After a confrontation with Goller, he chances upon a washed-up photographer named Jessel, played by Donald Pleasance, and comes up with a new scam, one that will keep him out of sight of the law, whilst also undermining Goller. The film's English title doesn't give any particular clue as to the nature of this scam, but the film titles used in different languages in other territories are a bit more revealing. In some countries it was retitled The Naked Mirror, and in Denmark it was called Eyes Behind the Mirror. In Sweden, it was known as the photo trap. And in France, perhaps the biggest giveaway, it was blackmail in Soho. The Finnish title of the film translates to shame traders, 
which I think is my favourite, but sadly for the people of Finland, it was banned in that country for reasons we can't get to the bottom of. If anybody knows why it was banned there, we'd love to know. According to Steve Chibnall in his 1999 book British Crime Cinema, The Shakedown, which was released in 1960, was rushed out to exploit public interest in a 1959 Act of Parliament which dealt with prostitution called the Street Offences Act. Prostitution, though, was a subject that Lee Vance had dealt with before in The Fleshy's Week, and The Shakedown came at a time when Soho films were quite the thing. In fact, approximately a third of the films on the official Soho Bites list of Soho films were released between 1955 and 1965. It also coincided, as mentioned earlier, with the liberalisation of attitudes at the BBFC with the arrival of John Trevelyan, so the groundwork had been laid and the time was right for the release of this gritty film about grubby people. Lee Vance's co-writer was John Lemont, who also directed the film. They'd collaborated before and would go on to make The Frightened City together in 1963, a more assured and convincing portrayal of Soho gang life. Richard Luck is a freelance writer and film critic for The New European, as well as writing for several other publications. Like everybody else, he's stuck indoors, so he met up on the dreaded Zoom as usual. I knew he'd seen The Shakedown before, which is why I initially contacted him. But what did he think about it? A remarkable film in many ways. The story is that of Oggy Cortona, who's played by uh, Terence Morgan, who is fresh out of jail, sort of very flash, gangster in the sort of the end, classic mould, goes back to his old stomping ground and uh, finds that his hold over the area seems to have evaporated. So he has to hit on a new scheme. And what he does is he um, encounters Jessel. Jessel is an alcoholic photographer played by Donald Pleasance, who uh, is looking for a break. And so Augie can give him one. What he's going to do is set up a two-way mirror and he's going to have the great and good cavorting with showgirls photographs of those and that'll keep the money rolling in. He's in no doubt this will work, what he wants to do. Yeah. Um, money is, it's elusive, but he he can bullshit anyone into believing he can get it or he has it. And the, and the way he gets his initial capital by robbing three of Gollar's men, he single-handedly robs three of his men yeah. in this really well-thought-out scheme where he stops a lift on a certain floor and knocks a block and locks him out. And... It is. It's so well done and so well executed and worked out. You watch it and you don't come away going, oh, that was, you know, it's incredibly far-fetched. You actually come away sort of uh, quite admiring the, the guile. Yeah. The police become involved, but in quite an unusual way and in a way that's rather progressive, this is a film made in 1960. Yeah, I mean, the police are involved right from the start, aren't they? They're, they've got the, yeah. they've got tabs on him. They actually go and visit him in jail when he's been released. That's right. So the central character, who are... Actually, all the names are quite weird. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm Matt. <laughs> it's Augustus is his full name, isn't it? Because that's... But you're not wrong. I mean, Spetigu, which is the, the Belowing character, Mildred Eage, you know, they're not... Uh, there's a certain Dickensian aspect to some of those names. Well, he calls himself Mr Miller throughout the film. because That's um, right, he does, yes. When he turns up there, he's... Uh, he makes a few phone calls and realises he's persona non grata in Soho. There's not a sympathetic note to that performance, is it at all? It's completely despicable. From minute one, we meet, we don't like him, and that will not change, um, which again, I think, makes it feel very sort of modern and contemporary in that respect. It's a fascinating performance. Terence Morgan was always a villain. Apparently, when he started up at the old Vic working with Olivier, playing Shakespearean villainous roles, 
he had quite a following. He got extraordinary amounts of fan mail from sort of young ladies who rather liked the cut of his uh, not so pleasant jib. But <laughs> he's great. It's a really muscular, quite dangerous performance. You feel at any minute he might smack someone in the face. He speaks to women and behaves around women in a way that you know is quite bracing, even you know from the. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the safety of the, yeah, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. It's extraordinary. He um has a hold over people without ever sort of charming them. He um yeah, you always feel it's the you know, the closed fist is going to sort of do the talking in the end. And as we'll find with the Jessel character, Jessel I think quite admires Mr. Miller's authority, but I think he is also just scared of the guy. Do you always call yourself just Jessel? My surname's Brown. I thought Jessel sounded better on its own, like uh, Hartnell or Barrow, you know, more distinguished. Where'd you get the women? They were all top models, lovely girls, some of them. They always said I could get more out of them than any other man in London. How much would it um, cost to set up your studio again, Jessel? Well, more than I could get scratching around doing wedding groups and passport photos. How much? Oh, well, let's see, um, at least a thousand to get started. Then there'd be another thousand to tide things over until I got known again. I'd rather not think about it. Supposing I backed you? You don't know anything about me. I might be willing to gamble. Where would you get the money? What day is this? It's Wednesday. What's that got to do with it? I've got a funny bank. Meet me here at one o'clock tomorrow. We'll look for a place. Hey, just a minute. I don't even know your name. Miller. Augie Miller. The way they meet is, I find it slightly perplexing because, um, Augie has this kind of um, tussle with a big fat man in a bar. And then the big fat man then has a bit of a tiff with Jessel. And then Augie leaps to his defence and seems to be a bit of a Robin Hood character tries and, and defends Donald Pleasance's character, Jessel. And I find that motivation slightly odd. It doesn't seem to fit with the rest of him. It seems quite... It's out of character, isn't it? Yeah, it, it does seem no. to be a genuine act of kindness. I don't think he knows at that point he can get something out of Jessel. It, it just, just seems to, yeah, not doesn't fit with the rest of his um, what we know about him. There are certain elements throughout the film of plot convenience and uh, where decisions seem to be made purely to get to the next scene. And that's the uh, sort of grossest example of that. It's still quite an effective scene, though, I think, them in the pub. And there's something quite satisfying. There's a couple of scenes that don't necessarily ring true but the film whips along at such a pace you're meeting people all the time so there's no real time to sort of sit back and pick over the uh, more inauthentic moments yeah it was written by lee vance we should say that a few of lee vance's films i've watched recently there's piccadilly third stop which is one of his what did you mention earlier on um the frightened city i think he, that's a uh, lee vance had... film yeah yeah and he what tends to happen is you just dropped right into a situation there's no explanation of who these characters are. You just have to learn as you go along. There's no exposition <laughs> in the prison scene where Jarvis the cop goes to visit Augie in prison has been released. Jarvis says, warns him about Gollis. So you're not going to go after Goller, are you? So unless you're listening properly to what's going on, it is quite tricky to pick up in it all. But it's all there. The plot is all there. I, I mean, I love films from yeah, the you know, British films in the 50s, 60s. I have a great fondness for them. And often, though, they have these terrible moments of plot convenience or exposition, which usually in a bar or a restaurant, it's two staff talking to one another. And it's, oh, look over there. It's, you know, so, you know, oh, has he bought that new? There's none of that. Obviously, these are quite distinctive looking actors as well. Bill Owen, who people will be familiar to, anyone from um, remembers Last of Summer Wine. You know, he's very distinctive. You know, another great British sitcom star, 
Harry H. Corbett playing another major villain in the piece. The great thing there is that even if you can't remember the name, you do know who these people are. It's not in those films where it seems everyone's wearing a trench coat and the same hat and you're having to sort of figure out, you know, one from the other. But as you said, that's a very modern form of storytelling. This is a film that clearly is trying to ape American film noir and often aping the best aspects of it, you know, treating an audience like adults and being sort of confronting. Do you think it successfully apes noir, American noir? By and large, yes. I mean... It's a shame there's not more shooting taking place in actual locations. If you're going to set something in Soho and then you're going to shoot predominantly, there are some, there are some you know, effective sort of street scenes, but by and large, you are just, you know, shooting at Studio B. I, I think they shot at Twitter, would be wrong. But, um, so that's one sort of drawback. But by and large, again, uh, one of the most extraordinary things in the film, a film made again, 1960, within like the first 10 minutes, there is a shot of a topless woman. And not just them passing, the camera lingers over a photograph of a topless woman. I mean, it was an ex-certificate, banned in Finland. <laughs> yeah, do we know about this band in Finland? What? I've read this. I was. I don't know why. I always find it really strange why films are banned in certain countries. Why the Finns may have taken against it or Finnish censor, I don't know. But you can see why it was an ex-certificate. It is, you know, I wonder what my parents would have made it. You know, they would have been uh, you know, young people in the early 60s. And may, they may have considered it quite sort of racy entertainment. Tonally, it's very dark. The fact yeah, that you spend yeah. all your time with this very, very unpleasant character who is, as you said in the, when we were talking before, you described him as, a, as an antagonist, not a protagonist. Yes, yeah. I'm not sure how unusual that was. It seems quite unusual to spend your whole time with somebody who is so distasteful a character. And the people he mixes with, he either dominates them or they're equally awful people. Mm. And, yeah. I mean, so, so I can see how it deserves, how it got its X certificate. But now it's, it's like a 12 now, isn't it? Or Most films are brought down, aren't they? I think the only one I can think of which wasn't was when The Wild Bunch the special edition of that came out and they maintained an 18. You know, by and large, a 1960s X is a, a modern day 12. But that was still, though, of all the things I was expecting to see in this film, that wasn't one of them. Straight away, you suddenly go, oh, hang on, this isn't your average Jack Warner film. You know, this isn't going to be a film where the, you know, the cops have it all tied up for tea and uh, no cosiness. We're in dangerous territory. And not pretend dangerous like uh, something like Cover Girl Killer, which is all a bit sort of Chased, fanciful. Yeah really. It does feel like it's based on some kind of knowledge of real Soho gang culture. Although actually the studio itself isn't in Soho, is it? It's somewhere up near Baker Street, sort of Crawford Street That's right. kind of yeah. area. Soho is more the flavour of the film, if that makes any sense. There were creatives involved in making this film who knew the area very well and had some understanding of that lifestyle. I think um, that idea of the flavour of Soho being imbued in the film is that's quite common to lots of the films that we look at as Soho Bites because there's one film we're doing quite soon called All Night Long. Oh, yeah, Patrick McGowan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which doesn't come anywhere near Soho. It's all set near Bankside. But all the musicians have come from a gig in Soho. Yeah. So we're calling it a Soho film for that reason. And actually, there's a link between... All Night Long and this film, which is Philip Green, the composer, yeah. is common to both films. And the music in this film, I know you're not keen on the actual, the shakedown, the song. All you hand me is a shakedown, shakedown. Sung by Sheila Buxton. 
But do you like the music? It's the, the, the theme music and the incidental music. I think the music's exceptional, and you're right. It's a shame there is a there is a song, and the film stops dead to take in this particular number. It's a song in which the word shakedown is rhymed with shakedown four times, also rhymed with breakdown, takedown, and how am I going to calm this ache down? It is um, <laughs> that's a good one. That tragic. <laughs> Give a girl a break Why don't you break down But the sad thing is it does It detracts from the fact the score is brilliant And it's grimy It's It captures a certain sort of seediness Of the locale And it's exciting I think it's tremendous Yeah, and it, it kind of makes up, I think, for the Because um, it doesn't have the budget of a proper Hollywood noir and lots of it is shot on kind of like four-walled sets or three-walled sets. Yeah. But it gives it a sense of class and edginess and sophistication that it might be lacking otherwise. I mean, it elevates it, I think, to being the, a, a very good film. I'm actually pleased that you like the film. You do like the film, don't you? That's what I'm getting from you. You like the film. Yeah, yeah good. I'm, good. I'm glad. <laughs> good, good. Because uh, lots of the films have done Soho Bites. We find that the person that doesn't actually like the film, it's quite refreshing to sort of somebody who... Um, likes the film in question. Well, what was really nice was we when you sort of dropped me a line, we got in touch via Twitter just chatting. I'd watched it only a couple of nights before, and so it was purely coincidental. I remember sitting down to watch it, and um, I just thought, oh, well, let's give this a go. And within sort of five or ten minutes, it's really starting to resonate, and I was really taken with it. And Morgan is it's a real sort of ass-kicking performance, mm. and surrounded by really good actors as well. I mean, Harry H. Corbett, is, it's great. If you have a, a great villain, there's usually a great second jizz in many ways, the, the Harry H. Corbett character. But, of course, they're against one another. So they're, um, you know, your hero isn't a hero. And you see him sort of clashing heads with another sort of... Uh, equally reprehensible person. Equally reprehensible. I just love seeing Harry H. Corbett do it. I love Steptoe, but I love seeing him do other things. Look, Jarvis warned me not to start a car, but let's do it peaceably, shall we? I want 50% of the take. In exchange for what? In exchange for the 100% you stole. But if the mathematics are too complicated for you, let's say it's to stop me running you off the streets. You gonna run me off? All by yourself? I got friends. You ain't got anything. After the publicity at the trial, your name stinks like a, like a sewer in this town. It stinks! Oh. You may be able to borrow a few quid if you're lucky, for old time's sake. But beyond that, you won't find anyone to light your cigarette. There's always something slightly fey about the character in, in certain moments. Yeah. But also, just a, I guess when you're that good an actor, you can add any number of layers to uh, a role. But um, putting those people together, putting them in close proximity as well. In terms of um, the context of its time, 1960, the behaviour between men and women is... I mean, we used to seeing in older films that kind of men always walk with women with their hand on the small of their back, like they can't possibly walk straight without a, a useful man's <laughs> arm, you know. And there's lots of kind of referring to women as girls or at one point billowing refers to um the secretary it's not as good as mildred but it has a few and that's quite shocking yeah. to my ears it seems to have a foot in both camps in a way it has the sort of prudishness of the 50s the way men and women relate to each other in this in the sort of etiquette way yeah. but also you know it has a, that salaciousness and like you say there's a two adult female breasts displayed for a good yeah. few seconds. Lots of the reviews of the films, the, the sort of 
retrospective reviews of the film, talk about it post-Wolfenden. Having read a quick summary of the Wolfenden report today, it led to the Street Offences Act of 1959. And what that seemed to do was put the onus of the criminality more onto the pimps than on the woman herself. So this is possibly why Augie is getting out of the street prostitution game, leaving old dinosaurs like Goller in the business. Yeah. Because, you know, it's slightly more hidden, his his new yeah. respectable business. That's fascinating. Well, no, but the one thing I was going to say, what, what's really interesting about that as well, is this is pre the pill coming yeah. in, and that's yeah. going to change the way that, you know, people procure sex. Men are going to... Yeah, the predatory aspect. Men around women are like sort of lions around wildebeest in certain in the movie. And it's, um, yeah, that's going to change things as well. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what would be the case of two years, three years down the line. We've not really talked about Donald Pleasance's performance as Jessel. No. Could you talk about his character a bit? He's an actor I'm hugely fond of. And the thing with Donald Pleasance, you think wonderful, wonderful villains. Even in Halloween, where he's playing the good guy, he's still exceptionally creepy. The one film that stands out from the opposite camp is The Great Escape, where he's the, you know, the blithe, the very um, almost cuddly forger who uh, James Garner takes under his wing. But Jessel is actually, imagine the forger from The Great Escape. He hasn't lost his sight, but he's lost other things. He's lost his uh, position in life. He's uh, lost his battle with the drink and so on. He's completely down on his luck this weak, vulnerable man who has the utter misfortune to meet the one person that he really, yes, he's going to help you out, but it's going to land you right in it. It's, yeah. uh, it's a really pathetic performance in some ways. And not It's a great performance, but of a pathetic person. You want him really away from Oggy. There's a moment where Jessel becomes aware that um, Oggy is a crook and mm. that he's up to his neck in it as well. Augie is aware that Jessel is a recovering alcoholic and pours him a couple of big glasses of scotch yeah. and makes him drink it. I mean, that's very, very cruel behaviour. That's a violation. It really is. I mean, I'm, I have the misfortune to uh, have my own issues with uh, alcoholism. Fortunately, you know, three years sober and what been a lot of work but it's been rewarding work but yeah to do that good god i mean you want skullduggery and the thing is it's the sort of skullduggery a lot of people won't have taken in it's just oh okay that's how you're uh, you're going to bring him around you're going to a bit of dutch courage this isn't about dutch courage at all this is about getting someone under your thumb the bar tab is always in oggy's pocket so he can always he can just yank on that chain whenever he wants yeah. it's a yeah it's that's a really sinister thing that He's sinister in a way that may, it, you know, it doesn't seem like beating someone up or, you know, blackmailing someone. It is a form of blackmail, I would actually yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And what about, um, well, there are a few female characters. Mm. Hazel, Hazel Court. Co- she gets the biggest credit as a female character. What do you think of yeah. her? I think she's just an extraordinary looking woman. She plays Absolutely. Mildred, which is a very unusual. Yeah. The name, <laughs> yeah, yeah it doesn't quite match. Exotic, yeah, an exotic woman going gets the name that is couldn't be less exotic. She's really good. What's interesting is you think she's going to be one sort of person, and she turns out to be rather a different uh, type of person with a, a different career. Hmm. And I think it's really interesting. Um, but yes, yeah, to look at her, you think, oh well, she, this is. Um, use that whole expression the eye candy of the piece you know here's uh, here's something for the chats that's not the case at all she's she's really good also strong enough to go up against those other characters the you know the villains of the piece 
you don't think they're going to tie to a railway track. She can sort of... She holds her own, doesn't she? Yeah. Verbally, if not physically, yeah. yeah. I think she's really good. I'm not a massive fan of horror films, really, but I know that she went on to become of a, a, a staple, the Hammer stable, didn't she? She did. And, when, and Terence Morgan also did one of their Mummy films as well. So, yeah, if you're a British actor and you want to work in the UK at that time, I guess that was one of the routes, just as, you know, with Harry H. Um, Corbett, showing up into carry on screaming when uh, Sid Jones had taken ill. You know, there were only so many ways you could go. You were not going to get thrown a script like this all the time. And the lead copper Jarvis, played by Robert Beatty, mm. quite liked him as well. I wasn't quite sure where his accent was going either. Yeah, here, you're right. The fact is, though, again, this is a period where most accents were some form of received English. Uh, what um, Michael Caine talking about, sort of the accents and things like, you know, with Brief Encounter and so on. So I knew no one who spoke with those accents. And I hated the way working class people, characters, spoke in films from that era right the way up until, until things like Alfie and so on. The, the other thing, by the way, Michael Caine hated in films was the way that working class characters fight in films. These people clearly never thrown a punch in their life. Yeah, which, yeah. Is all, which conversely in this, I mean, when Terence Morgan gets his jukes up, you know, and he's got that ring as well. And you think, oh, yeah, there's, there's someone you wouldn't want to, uh, a right hand you wouldn't want to get in the way of. Did you spot a little cameo? Well, it's not really cameo because they weren't known at the time, but quite a famous person crops up briefly. Jackie Collins. Jackie Collins, well done, yeah. As Lynn Curtis, because apparently she got sick of being confused with her sister. And Joan was a big star now. Yeah. She worked with Howard Hawks in the States and so on. One thing I would mention, it's if you, anyone um, has a chance to check out the artwork for the film, the poster, it's terrific. It's a real sort of, you can imagine it being a sort of, you know, the front cover for a you know, 50s crime novel or something like that. It's got a, it just captures the mood of the film perfectly. It's a real artwork. It's on the show notes, actually. If listeners go to SohoBitesPodcast.com, yeah. they will uh, see the poster. It's a really good one. And there's a, they've got, it's got a lurid strap line, something like... Models with a bait for blackmail. Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> this is the tin, and this is what it says on it. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. <laughs> Richard is not wrong. The Shakedown poster is really good and you can find it on the show notes as usual. I've also included a link to several other versions of the poster from different territories for your enjoyment. You're welcome. And thanks very much to Richard Luck for talking to me about The Shakedown. Richard has written books on various subjects as well as appearing regularly in the New European and other publications. And of course, you can find links to his work and his social media contacts, along with those of my other esteemed guest, Melanie Williams, on the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com. But as we all know, nobody listens this far into a podcast, so nobody's listening. So I'm going to say some rude words. Bum, nipples, stinky poo, willy. And as ever, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. See you soon, and bye for now.